thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. I don't want to sound like the prophet of doom, especially at the start of the show. But sometimes I feel as if we're witnessing the collapse of the National Health Service in real time. Since the COVID pandemic, the principle of quick and easy access to a named GP seems to be more honoured in the breach than observance. And social services have never been properly integrated into the NHS. And some say they're on a brink of collapse despite the claims of politicians to have sorted out the problem. Recruitment training have not been properly addressed and staff levels are apparently hemorrhaging, sometimes because newly trained nurses and clinicians move abroad to practice for better paid administrations in our post-Brexit world. These problems are well rehearsed and obviously need attention right now. But even putting aside the urgent matter of funding, real change seems very difficult to achieve. Here's Ian Roberts speaking on the aptly named Naked Scientist show, You Can't Teach an Old Dogma New Tricks. Medicine is like this sort of huge super tanker that changes course very, very slowly because it's all about habits. Doctors might say they are up to date with the evidence and they think of every individual patient that's in front of them. But actually, a lot of it is habits. And, you know, patients like this, I normally manage like this. And so changing habits is quite difficult. With me to discuss the state of the national health on Naked Reflections are two people who I hope can contradict my gloomy prognosis. Sarah Smith, a Cambridgeshire GP for nearly 20 years with two teenage children, and Gert Randawa, Professor of Diversity in Public Health at the University of Bedford, who has cheered me before, and I hope you, dear listener, on this programme. Sarah, you're in the front line. Is the NHS really on its knees or is it doing okay? I think we are struggling and looking at the figures, we're 12,000 hospital doctors short, 50,000 nurses and midwives short and around 8,000 GPs short in the UK. And that is undoubtedly putting a lot of pressure on the service and pressure on the staff that are currently working as well. 
Sarah's very helpfully alluded to workforce issues, and I think this is one of the challenges that successive governments do tend to make these sort of annual projections around how many new staff they've appointed. Um, but what they neglect to mention is how many people also leave health and social care, and also about how many people now, quite understandably, are moving to flexible working or potentially retiring. But the workforce terms and conditions don't really permit them to contribute as much as many people would like to. So pretty much everybody who I know wants to contribute more. It's their terms and conditions that's stopping them, not their own well-intentioned values. Um, And I think that's one of the elephants in the room that the incentive structure for NHS and health and social care staff for example, the whole question of doctors' pensions has never been resolved. If you look at doctors, they train for five to six years at medical school um, and then go on to specialist training. And so in total, doctors' training takes 10 to 15 years. And while they're training, they're not being paid um, for the first six years. So it's already a costly thing for a doctor and they often borrow quite a lot of money to do that and then they often work very very hard for their entire NHS career and provide services to the private sector as well and then I think to then treat them badly at at the end of their career with very vast pension taxes which makes them retire early and cut down their hours is a very, very sad thing and I think we need to be looking at bringing some of those doctors out of retirement and back into the workforce so that we can support the medical staff that are already there. So it sounds like an institutional problem as much as anything else, that the system is broken without being too melodramatic. I wouldn't say it's broken. It's in need of uh, repair. Health and social care is used in history in the UK um, to win elections. And therefore, because we're not able to independently and cross-party-wide look at this and sort of say, what do we need to do to forward protect ourselves? So think about sort of decades or sort of 20, 30 years along the line. Um, We need that sort of cross-party thinking. But as we all know, uh, political parties think in sort of uh, election cycles. Um, So that tends not to happen. So we've had numerous commissions like the Oneness Review on Public Health, etc., and the Marmot Review. Um, But what you find is because of the way that the politics of the NHS is handled, we don't get the traction that we ought to. Sarah, do you think that the, the politics of the NHS has become more toxic from the inside? I think we have to, again, look at figures. So thinking about a doctor, on average, they work for 25 years in the NHS um, or in their jobs. Social workers, looking at them, they only work an average of 7.5 years. And I think that's a startling statistic, really. Um, And we have to remember that all healthcare workers work as a big team. And without each part of the team functioning properly, it's very difficult for the whole NHS to function. Let's take it step 
by step, if you like. One thing that you've both touched on is the integration, if you like, of the social service sector, the multi-agency approach, the multi-stakeholder, which isn't done effectively. Um, What can be done to improve that? And I recognise that funding is an issue. Let's be honest, in today's climate, we're unlikely to be receiving huge swathes of money into the NHS to improve it. So what can be done? I think with social workers, we're at a five-year high with vacancies. It's difficult for social workers. They have quite unmanageable caseloads because there aren't enough of them. Um, There's rising pressures on them because of that lack of resources. There's been chronic underfunding for years. And I think social workers do do a very stressful job. Um, They're often dealing with difficult, tough cases. There might be domestic violence involved, um, abuse of children. And you know, that can really exhaust a a social worker and affect their personal life. And so they need support to have enough of them there on the ground to be coping with the workload and then allowing them to have their time off work and not um, doing loads of extra hours so that they get even more burnt out because they're just trying to manage with fewer and fewer of them. That's a very, very powerful story, Gertrude, isn't it, on the ground of people being burnt out. So I think there's something for me about ideology, um, and you're probably going to say he would say this as a professor <laughs> of public health, and it may sound idealistic, but please bear with me. I think there's something about putting the H back into the NHS. So I think, you know, if, if we sort of step back a bit, I think we've, you know, lost the health aspect and we've stopped focusing on the health of the population and, you know, with all due respect, we've become a national sickness service. So the, the sort of NHS is no longer NHS. So in my view, it's about how do we tackle the root causes of ill health, which are disproportionately more prevalent in more poorer communities. And therefore, the focus has got to be on dealing with poverty, but in all of its dimensions. So that's what I'm sort of saying. It's got to move out of, for example, the government department of health and social care and i think that's where we take too narrow a focus in this country again maybe naively i had the seismic impact of the covid pandemic would have actually accelerated investment in preventative health because we would have seen that actually it was the people who were the most vulnerable in community who had the highest rates of morbidity mortality what we've actually seen is quite the opposite that the largest cuts in public health budgets across the UK have been in the local authorities with the greatest levels of poverty. So we need to step back and think about that. And maybe with a new government, um, well, new prime minister, and it's not a current issue, I might add. Um, I think it's something that successive governments, they just failed to grasp the fact that in an ageing population, prioritising health and well-being, it's the only sustainable way to manage the future of health and social care. Sarah probably sees this at the front line far more than I ever would, but you know, but I'll state the blind in the obvious. If you don't invest in social care, many patients who are currently stuck in hospital beds, they just can't be freed. And I'm not saying that for all patients, but that's an issue. We need to do a bit more than talking about these things. We actually need to think about investment. And I think Sarah's been quite uh, heroic really because we've managed to discuss this without even thinking about investments in primary care 
I think currently the target that the government are proud of is a two-week commitment to seeing a GP. Um, but those of us, and Sarah and I um, have been in the system quite a long time, will remember the heady days when we used to have a 48-hour waiting time target. So now to be proud of a two-week target, I don't think is anything to be proud of. And it's not because GPs and primary care teams aren't working their socks off, quite the opposite. But what's happened is there's no recognition at government level that primary care is currently underfunded and requires urgent investment. It's interesting talking about the lack of social care, because obviously we do have delays in emergency departments. We've got delays getting people then onto the medical wards and onto other wards in the hospital. And then many, many often older people stuck in hospital and we can't get them out to care beds. And one thing that struck me recently, um, I visit four or five different care homes around our area, and I know it's a problem across the country. Many, many care homes have a lot of empty beds. So there are beds for the people stuck in hospital. But the problem is we can't get them out because the care homes just cannot get enough care staff. And a lot of them are a third short of the care staff that they need. And then again, you know, impacts on the staff that are already there, they're tired, looking after the people they're caring for. And we have a big shortage of carers in the community as well to look after those people that wish to be cared for in their own homes. Wow, my shoulders are sagging in the first half of this episode. I think we should take a pause and in the second half, give some thought about what we can actually do to improve the system. And i hearing that two of the things our money and extra staff. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Sarah Smith and Gertrude Randawa, and our subject, the state of the national health. Here's a clip from the Naked Scientist show, Life in the Branches, which describes some promising developments. Robotic surgery is really taking off. You can uh, have surgeons in one country doing keyhole surgery on patients in another country. Now, uh, researchers are working on new technology to improve compatibility between robot systems that would allow doctors to use the internet to operate surgical robots all over the world. Well, that's all well and good, but that clip is more than 10 years old. And, as our first clip implied, progress in medical matters often seems to be unrelentingly slow. That may be a slightly gloomy start to the second half but I promised you listeners that we would pick up on well what can we do about it is there a case for optimism are there examples overseas that we can look at why don't we start with a question I was going to ask at the end could you suggest one major change that could begin to turn things around and that major change please and I hear the question about money or the issue about money and staff, but what else might we do? Or is it simply we just got to put more money into it? Uh, Gertrude, I'll start with you. I think we need to look for alignment on what we're trying to achieve and government policy. So we must remember this current government was elected on the whole notion of levelling up. And I think that's where we need to start because that's what this government wants to do. So it's got this rhetoric of levelling up. And I think what we need to do is to support government to translate that rhetoric of levelling up into reality. And what I would say is from my work around the world, I would use, and this is a public health model that we've used in many countries. It's something called ABCD, asset-based community development. 
is where we see communities as being empowered to solve a lot of their issues around, for example, poverty, education, health and well-being. But most importantly, they're also invested in. So not just empowered, they're invested in. So those public health grants would not be therefore cut in the areas of greatest poverty because it would be a contradiction to levelling up, wouldn't it? And I genuinely feel, because I am um, a natural born optimist, the timing is right. So we've got levelling up mantra for a government. We've got brand new prime minister who is pulling together a brand new cabinet. And we need to encourage them to shift away from this appeal of populistic gestures of, you know, announcing 40-odd hospitals, GP waiting targets, which is akin to really emperors without any clothes. And I think what we really got to do is support them to take this community development approach and use the evidence. So if you look at, for example, the sugar tax on drinks, that's effective, but you've got murmurs that the government might reverse that. So we need to support them not to reverse that. But also there were, up until a few weeks ago, the government was going to introduce um, the ban of buy one, get one free on unhealthy food offers. But they were now talking about maybe shelving that ban. And we need to encourage them not to shelve that. And if anything, they should be offering subsidies on healthy foods. If they're going to offer buy one, get one free offers, they should be on fruit and vegetables and things like that. Because we need to move away from these obesogenic environments, which again, tend to be more prevalent in poorer communities. I think healthy eating and promoting exercise is is a very good thing. We've seen Jamie Oliver promoting healthier school meals. And I think that's something we need to continue to do. Um, And I know the government are looking at perhaps providing more free school meals to more of the children. And I think if we can keep teaching children at a young age about healthy eating and exercise and the importance of it to maintain health and then that then moves through life and makes a social change looking forward in the longer term um, because you then have healthier children becoming healthier adults who will then teach their own children healthier ways of living Um, and that would help to keep health costs down in the long term. Should we be encouraging families to take more responsibility for the elderly? I mean, I think that's a lovely idea. And I, you know, I meet on a daily basis some wonderful families who do care for their elderly and some of them do live nearby. You know, some people don't have children, so they do rely more on um, very helpful neighbours. And again, I meet wonderful people out in the villages who help their neighbours, help their friends. Um, And I think, you know, maybe we need to be looking at supporting those community projects more. We've got wonderful wardens that go around to visit uh, older people in the villages and keep an eye on them and then alert the relevant healthcare professionals when there's a problem. Gertz, you've done a fair amount of research looking at alternative systems overseas. Um, I'm just wondering if there are any examples, I'm sure there are many, that you could give us which we could apply here in the UK? I think the challenge is, is all these systems are complex because they're, there's a history to them, there's a political history, there's a financial history. So I think it's difficult to emulate them. But I think the fundamental principle is those systems that focus more on prevention and early intervention across the life course from literally from childbirth, maternal health to uh, teenage health and adulthood and then ageing well, they do well. Whereas the systems that focus on, as I said, the sickness model, 
who tend to do less well. So if you look at countries like Cuba is a good example, Cuba is a primary care model. And again, there's a political history to that because they had to make decisions when they were, if you like, partitioned from many um, economic opportunities. I'm having to choose my words carefully. So therefore, they had to invest in primary care and education, and it actually did really well for them. For such a relatively poor country, you know, their health and life expectancy is good. And I think we could learn from countries like that. We need to move away from this uh, political trap of looking for these um, political points and photo opportunities when you build new hospitals. We should be looking for those opportunities when we've invested in communities to accelerate their own health and well-being. Um, So, for example, if you roll out social prescribing well, it can have a huge impact. But you've got to invest in rolling it out well so that people then, you know, do use, for example, gardening or walking at pace, etc. And it can benefit them. You have to invest in these things rather than see these things as done for free. I mean, I think we're continuously, as well as trying to deal with the ill people in our GP surgeries, we are trying to promote good health. Um, We're always trying to promote not smoking, not uh, drinking too much alcohol, um, healthy living, exercise. And we do do a lot of health promotion alongside looking after the the sick people. And our um, healthcare assistants and nursing team also help us with that. But it's very difficult in a system that's already strained. You know, um, Gert was suggesting that people are waiting two weeks for a GP appointment, sometimes three in London, I'm aware. Um, So I think, you know, it's a system that is strained. And when you're trying to deal with sick people, it can be difficult sometimes trying to squeeze in the health promotion, even though, you know, we, we love to do a lot of that when we get the opportunity. I have to share with listeners that as someone who's undergoing uh, cancer treatment, I've been very fortunate within the uh, NHS system to have a very prompt treatment here in Cambridge under Addenbrooke's. But I guess that's an exception. It's a postal code lottery. One of the challenges for anybody undergoing treatment is, of course, the uncertainty. Um, you don't know what's going to happen, appointments are cancelled, uh, and that really does affect the mental health as well as, I should think, the physical health. Should we be looking at increasing our investment in the private sector for minor elective stuff, um, allowing the NHS to do the more um, substantial work? I think we are already doing quite a lot of that. So um, if I use perhaps varicose veins as an example, that was something when I was a younger doctor, it was often done by the surgeons in the hospital. Um, But now we've moved away from that. And people do generally have to go privately for that sort of thing if they want them treated. Also minor lumps and bumps. Those we tend to divert people away to the private sector to deal with those if they want them removed because the NHS just simply don't have enough staff or, or time to deal with every lump or bump. I have many patients that do come forward. They're not happy sometimes waiting two or three years for their hip or knee replacement and some of them are willing to pay for that if they don't have medical insurance and some of them do have medical insurance to cover it. So so people are looking at other options But of course, that does exclude those who are in the poverty sector because, you know, people don't have the money to do that. You know, they barely have the money to eat well and heat their homes, let alone pay for private treatment. It feels a bit like a perfect storm, doesn't it, as we're drawing to a close? We need a fundamental change in the way the 
NH, and I emphasize the H listener, NHS Trust is services is managed. We need a fundamental change in the investment. We need a fundamental change in the number of people working in there and supporting workers in the NHS. And we need to deal with this ever-increasing problem of poverty. Well, the NHS is over 70 years old and sounds like just about surviving, but this podcast has come to an end. Thanks to my guests, Sarah Smith and Gertrude Randawa, and thanks to you, patient listener. If you enjoyed the show, you would want to browse, I hope, the Naked Reflections archive where you can find an interesting contribution from Gertrude himself about organ donation. And feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at the Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.